Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. So I am going to move on to the secret, all right? I've taught this to literally thousands of people, and understanding the secret is really critical. All right, so here's what I want you to do, if you would. Bear with me. I want to actually change the way, a little bit, the way that you think about measuring money. So the classic way of measuring money is whoever has the most money wins. So let's assume for discussion's sake that I have a million dollars in my IRA. And let's assume, and that's all I have. And let's assume that you have $900,000 outside your IRA, but that's all you have. I have more money than you, right? Because measured in traditional ways, whoever has the most money wins. I have a million. You only have $900,000. I have more money than you. But if you think about it, if I want to go out and spend that money and I want to buy goods and services, etc., I have to cash in my IRA, pay taxes on it, and then with whatever's left, use money to buy goods and services. You, on the other hand, may be subject to some capital gains on the appreciation. You don't have to pay taxes on it. So you actually have more purchasing power with your $900,000 than I do with my million dollars, okay? Is that fair that we're going to use purchasing power as our measure of wealth rather than total dollars? All right, so... Let's assume that we each have $100,000, and if you want, you can add a zero to this or even two zeros uh, because the concept is the same. But let's keep it simple. We each have $100,000 in our IRA. We each have $24,000 outside our IRA. So we each have $124,000 total, measured in total dollars. All right, now, let's assume for discussion's sake that you make a Roth IRA conversion of your $100,000 in your traditional IRA. And that additional $100,000 of income is going to trigger a $24,000 tax. So you write a check to the IRS for $24,000. So you now have $100,000 in a Roth IRA. I have $124,000 because I didn't make a Roth conversion. But let's say I want to go out and buy something. I have to cash in my $124,000, I'm sorry, I have to cash in my $100,000 IRA, um, and that's going to trigger a $24,000 tax. So my my purchasing power is the same as yours. Okay, do you see that? My $124,000 total dollars, I can only buy $100,000 of goods and services. You, with your $100,000 in the Roth IRA, you can buy $100,000 worth of goods and services. So on day one, 
It is a break-even measured in purchasing power. Now, so few, even the so-called guru experts, they don't really get this. They are, so many of them are still measuring in total dollars. If you measure in total dollars, you're going to get a bad result and you're going to get uh, the wrong advice on Roth IRA conversions. So let's just say that we're measuring in total dollars, which is what so many of the commentators uh, and writers do. What the conclusion is after running the numbers, if you're measuring in total dollars, are that Roth IRA conversions are good for young people because they'll have enough years of the tax-free growth to overcome the money that they pay to make to get into a Roth conversion, all right? But they will conclude for older people, it doesn't make sense because the older person doesn't have enough years of life expectancy in order to overcome the taxes that they had to pay on the Roth conversion. And that's all true if you're measuring in total dollars. But if you measure in purchasing power, which is what I'm going to strongly recommend that you do, then you find out it's a tie because you both have $100,000 of purchasing power, not in year 20, year 30, but on day one, all right? It is a tie measured in purchasing power, assuming steady tax rates. Um, by the way, if it's raising tax rising tax rates, it's even better, but let's just assume steady, you break even on day one. Now, I'm still not going to have you write a check for $24,000 to the IRS to break even. So let's compare, and this, this again is an update of peer-reviewed analysis, let's compare two people who have identical amounts of money, one does a series of Roth IRA conversions, one doesn't, and let's see how they do over time measured in purchasing power, okay? Well, again, depending on your assumptions and depending on when you start, there could be a difference of a million bucks of doing a, ser of doing a series of Roth IRA conversions versus doing nothing, um, even if you're starting later in life. So this, again, is such a powerful strategy and so few people are doing it or doing the right amounts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just think it's a great opportunity. Um, and, they're and, you know, there is some talk about them limiting it, you know, let's say for people who have $10 million or things like that. And part of, and the Retire in the Secure Act was part of the same thing because I won't say that we abused it, but I'll just say that we made massive Roth IRA conversions, sometimes, you know, converting a million dollars or more into the Roth to literally establish tax-free dynasties. But even forgetting those huge amounts, uh, in this example, we did a series of Roth IRA conversions to try to stay within an existing tax bracket. And again, the, the beneficiary, not, forget, no, I'm sorry, not the beneficiary, the IRA owner, uh, again, depending on how long, if you lived long enough, he's a couple million dollars better off, but even living till I think 85, uh, there was like a million dollars better off, which is huge. Now, let's take it to the next generation because what I have found is that very few people spend their Roth because it's such a great asset to leave behind to the next generation. And in the solid line, we show what happens. And again, this is, this is after inflation and 
measured in purchasing power. The solid line shows where your kids will be if you do the Roth conversion. And the serrated line shows where your kids will be if you don't make a Roth IRA conversion. Again, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, after inflation measured in purchasing power. So this is really a tremendous uh, strategy. Here's the other thing about it. Let's say that you don't do a Roth conversion and let's put maybe two zeros on this analysis and your estate is $12,400,000, all right? And let's say that you die at a time when that is, or that is taxable, or even forgetting federal estate tax, state inheritance tax. Um, if you do the Roth conversion the day before you die, the amount of money that you have to pay in income taxes is no longer in your estate. So even though your purchasing power is the same, you have reduced your taxable estate by maybe $240,000, or if you had a zero, maybe uh, $2.4 million. And we have people, we have done massive Roth IRA conversions, not just to save income taxes, but also to reduce the taxable estate. You know, we've actually literally done, and I have stories that I don't have time for, we have done deathbed Roth IRA conversions. One was literally done at the hospital, wait, wait, hold on, sign here, and then die. And that's actually what happened. Um, and again, the family was better off by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, of course, it was sad the guy died, but um, it was terrific that we could uh, help that family that way. All right, a couple, let's say, considerations. Do you have after-tax dollars to pay for the Roth IRA conversion? All right. Is, are you headed for higher income in the future with required minimum distributions and social security? And here's the other thing that a lot of people don't take into account. Let's assume for discussion's sake that maybe you're even in a relatively low tax bracket now um, and that you're married and you're doing married filing joint tax returns. Well, when one of you die, um, the year after death, the survivor has to now file uh, as a single, uh, subject to a few exceptions for head of household, but let's assume the kids are grown, then they have to file as single, and that by itself is going to significantly raise the tax bracket. These are all things that should be taken into consideration. Then, uh, this happens with a lot of our clients. We have a lot of what I would call IRA-heavy clients. So I sometimes joke our uh, typical client has maybe a couple million dollars or at least a million dollars in an IRA, 401k, 403b, CEO, Kia, etc., um, a paid-up house, and uh, a Honda and a Toyota. And somebody says, no, I have two Toyotas, or somebody says, no, I have a Prius. But it's not all that unusual for us to uh, meet with people who ha have significant IRAs uh, and not significant after-tax dollars. Sometimes it does make sense to do Roth IRA conversions, even if you don't have the money to pay the tax on the IRA from outside the IRA. Um, sometimes it just makes sense to take money out of the IRA, which can reduce minimum required distributions and reduce um, a, state tax, a, a state problems for your heirs. Um, sometimes, uh, and this, this might not pass the stomach test for you, 
But sometimes, and it does pass the math test for a lot of people because we've done the math, it might make sense to take a home equity loan or a home equity line of credit or a HELOC. And we use those proceeds, which again are non-taxable. So we have non-taxable proceeds from uh, the, the mortgage um, or the HELOC, et cetera. We pay taxes on a Roth IRA conversion and um, ultimately, let's say it's paid back later on after minimum required distributions kick in, or maybe it's never paid while you're alive and you die with a, a mortgage or some money that is owed, uh, the house or the property is sold, the mortgage is satisfied, whatever is left goes to the kids. But in the meantime, it gave you money to get to uh, pay the tax on the conversion. And a lot of times the kids might be tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars better off because you did that. And hardly anybody knows, knows about that strategy. It doesn't pass the stomach test for a lot of people. They just can't stand it. You know, they've spent 30 years paying off their mortgage, it's finally paid off, boom. Uh, now I'm saying, oh, go, go take a mortgage, make a Roth IRA conversion. Uh, again, for many people, it will pass the math test. On the other hand, if you can't sleep at night, then don't worry about it, just don't do it. Um, I actually wrote an article in, for Forbes.com uh, entitled, Let Your House Pay for Your Roth IRA Conversion. And again, it very often passes the math test. It might not pass the stomach test. The other thing that has you have to do, or you have to you should take into consideration, is what is the impact of a Roth IRA conversion on Medicare? And in our books coming up, we actually have a whole chapter on that specifically. That said, let me mention one particular group of people, uh, although it applies to a lot of people, but um, <clears throat> up until the pandemic, most of our clients came from Western Pennsylvania and they tended to be IRA heavy. And one of the groups that I kind of intuitively appealed to were engineers. And I gave a talk to the Westinghouse retiree group known as the Shore Group and I gave that talk every year for the last, I don't know, 20, 20 some years. And these are pretty some smart old engineers. And they probably more than most people got it with Roth IRA conversions. And they were pretty up on Roth IRA conversions. But it was almost a religion with those folks that if the Roth IRA conversion bumped up their premium on Medicare Part B, that they wouldn't do the conversion that would bump it over that limit. And that's the way they thought. And it was almost like gospel. Well, I would say it's better to run the numbers and see. And here's the reasoning why it still might be better. Because if you're doing a Roth IRA conversion, and let's say that that does bump you into a higher Medicare Part B premium, the Roth IRA will ultimately re result in a lowered minimum required distribution, which down the road might reduce your taxable income and will reduce your Medicare Part B. So it's not necessarily uh, an easy call, uh, particularly if you are a long-term player, and sometimes the benefits of the Roth will, will far exceed uh, the downside of paying some extra Medicare Part B uh, tax or, or, or premiums. All right. Another. So so that's something to take into consideration. Now, I mentioned earlier in the beginning, actually, now is a before I get to a new strategy, why don't I take uh, a question or two if we have them in the 
you right now. So Erica, do we want to take anything else um, that might relate to the secret or uh, Roth IRA conversion strategies? There are definitely some more Roth IRA conversion strategy questions. So yeah, let's take some. Um, we got a question from Eric, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. He says, if your income is not a fixed salary and it fluctuates being commission-based, how do you estimate the proper conversion amounts so that you avoid pushing yourself into the next higher tax bracket? So I guess if you have that extra built-in fluctuation in income, how would you do long-term planning? Well, um, and by the way, this, this is a very real situation for people in sales, for people who are working on contingencies, a contingency fee type attorney when it's really hard to predict income and let's just ideally if you can control when the income comes in you know let's let's say for discussion's sake you're an attorney and you're working and you're you've won a big contingent fee case and it's for a million dollars or half a million dollars or something very significant and you can control whether you get that money in December or in January well, depending on the rest of your tax situation, we might want to defer that income until January and do a big Roth IRA conversion in the prior year or vice versa. The other way to do it, if you don't know, is, and, and boy, this is against self-interest because we become crushed, you know, right towards year end, but conceptually um, hold off until you have a better idea of what your income is going to be. Unfortunately, what's happening with a lot of the brokerage firms is that they are putting earlier and earlier dates on the last day you can tell them to do a Roth conversion. So that might hurt uh, some people who want to wait. Um, probably if you can do these calculations, if possible, in November rather than in December, that might be one way to uh, solve the problem. Um, but, but the other thing to keep in mind is that whether you do it in, let's say you pay a little bit more in taxes or you hold off and you do it a year later, that's not really likely to move the needle a lot in the long run. What's moving the needle a lot in the long run is the income tax-free growth that you are receiving for yourself and your family the reduction of minimum required distributions and the tax-free growth that will continue uh, long after you're gone, that is really what is moving the needle, which isn't to say that you shouldn't do it in the lower tax bracket years. Uh, traditionally, if it's more predictable, let's say that you're working and your tax bracket's real high, you, you don't do it then. Then let's say the plan is to retire, let's say it's 66, and when you're 67, you don't have income, you don't from work or from self-employment, you don't have minimum required distributions, you don't have social security, your income goes way down. Then that pattern continues until 70 when your social security kicks in. And then, by the way, not 66, another another issue that we'll hopefully have time for today. Um, if, if we get cut, get, get cut short, I'd rather skip some social security strategies then skip on Roth IRA conversion strategies. Then the income goes back up at 72 because you have minimum required distributions and two social securities uh, if you're married. So I like to do the conversion in those 
low-income years? Again, long, long-winded answer to a short question, but I hope that helps. Why don't we take one more before we move on, Erica? Great. Uh, William just asked me to clarify. He wasn't sure. He thinks maybe he misunderstood uh, when you were talking about uh, inherited Roth IRAs. Um, so he said, in reference to Roth IRAs that are inherited, did I understand Jim to say that the person inheriting the Roth will have to pay taxes on any capital gains that the Roth generated in that 10-year period you know, before they have to completely... No, no. If, if, if you inherit a Roth IRA, <clears throat> a Roth IRA um, at least under the existing law, you can just literally do nothing with that Roth IRA. <clears throat> to make the math easy, let's say it's a, an inherited Roth IRA of $500,000. You just leave it alone in a plain old inherited Roth IRA account. It earns income at 7%. <clears throat> 10 years later, it's now a million dollars. You must distribute that money out of the inherited Roth IRA accounts into a plain old brokerage account. There is no income tax, not only on the $500,000 that you inherited, the inherited Roth IRA, there's also no income tax on the growth of the $500,000 um, that was in the inherited, uh, on the inherited Roth IRA. Uh, now, again, and we don't really know this, but there was something, and it came as a surprise to me, and I don't like to spend too much time on the proposed regs because sometimes you get it mixed up into what the law really is, and then the proposed regs, and then they do something different. But the proposed regs are suggesting that you're going to have to take this out, that you can't just do what I just said, which is to wait 10 years. Uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the final regs are, but at least, it, but the law as it stands right now is your beneficiary can wait 10 years, um, have all that money, including the growth, come out tax-free at the end of the 10 years. Okay, since that was a short one, why don't we take one more? Absolutely. So uh, Marie said, hi, Jim, I'm reviewing my IRA to determine which stocks to convert in this month's uh, Roth conversion. One thought with the market down right now is, would it be better to convert the stocks with the greatest current value? Well, first of all, they don't ring a bell at the top or the bottom. And this has been a, you know, a big thing. People love to, I mean, if they did ring a bell, obviously you want to convert at the low end. Um, this is really more of an investment question, but this is what I would say. <clears throat> Roth IRA conversions are not a short-term strategy. The vast majority of Roth IRA conversions that I have seen in my career, and I've seen a lot of them since 1998, is that people don't spend them, so they die with them. And then uh, in the old days, people could stretch it over their lifetime. Uh, today, even if you don't fault, meet one of the exceptions, you have to take it out in 10 years. So my point is, so let's say you're 60 or 70 or something like that. Maybe you have a 20 or 30 year life expectancy, then add another 10 years. The point is, this is a very long-term investment. All right. So since it's going to grow income tax-free for a long time, I would prefer that investment be things that have something with a significant upside, even if it comes with volatility. So in the stock versus bond world, I'm going to pick stocks more volatile, but over a long period of time has a much higher return. Um, 
in my own portfolio, we have the vast majority of our riskier investments that tend to be more, they have a higher standard deviation, meaning they go up and down more. But in the long term, these types of investments have historically done better. So for example, we have an overweight in our Roth for small companies. We have an overweight uh, or an overweighting in value companies because again, small and value have historically done better than let's say large growth companies. Large growth is probably closer to the S&P, although the S&P has some value too. But anyway, my point is, um, if you, and, and I don't worry, oh, the market's down, let's do it. That's not as exciting to me as getting the right categories of money in the Roth. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Lying Money Hour, where smart money talks. If you've discovered the answers to your questions and would like to schedule an appointment with Jim, please call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. Or if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming webinars, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinar. That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. That's 2020 webinars.